0: Good morning. We are in 1 Kings 12. Rebom went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rebom and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us. But now, lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rebom answered, Go away for three days, and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rebom consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people? he asked. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people, and serve them, and give them a favorable answer, They will always be your servants. But Rebman rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, What is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, Lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, Tell these people who have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them... My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rebom as the king had said, Come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly. Rejecting the advice given him by the elders, he followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord. To fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah, the Shalonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David, what part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rebom still ruled over them. King Rebom sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. King Rebom, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel had fallen in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him a king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. When Rebboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered the whole house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 fighting men, to make war against the house of Israel. And to regain the kingdom for Rebom, son of Solomon. But this word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rebom, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to the whole house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they, So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again, as the Lord had ordered. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and lived there. From there he went out and built at Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom is now likely to revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rebom, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rebom. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made, and at Bethel he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the fifteenth day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel so he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings this is God's word
1: good morning let me have my welcome for those of you who haven't met I'm James I'm one of the apprentices here and as we come to God's word in 1 kings chapter 12 should we pray together father we praise you that we can trust your word We thank you that it is living, it is sure. And so as we come to look at 1 Kings chapter 12 now, I pray that you would help us understand it and respond rightly to your word, your trustworthy word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So knowing that someone's word is trustworthy is a very reassuring thing. So I remember uh, when I was about 11 or 12, Dad and I had gone to a football match and, as football fans occasionally do, it got quite feisty and the fans were getting a little bit aggressive with one another. And so as was 11, 12-year-old, I was a little bit scared. And as we left the ground and going back to the car, we we took a turn down a road and there in front of us were about 30 or so, I think they'd had a little bit too much to drink, football fans from the opposition, opposition team. And I was a bit scared What are they going to do? They're they're getting a bit abusive. And my dad turned to me and said, don't worry, it's going to be okay. And he took us a different way, and we got back to the car safely. And that's reassuring when you're 12. That's very reassuring. A word that is trustworthy. But of course, the other side to being able to trust my dad's word was that sometimes he would say to me, James, if you don't stop messing around, you'll get sent to your room. And when I kept messing around... His word was trustworthy, and I got sent to my room. You see, a trustworthy word, it both reassures us, but it also warns us. It reassures and it warns. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, the point of it is that God's word is like that. Sometimes it reassures. It gives great reassurance. God is in control. He's on the throne. But sometimes it warns. If you don't go... The right way, this is what will happen. His word reassures and it warns. if you're joining us this week in One Kings, you've seen that we 're a new part in the, the story. So chapters one to ten we 've seen the glorious reign of King Solomon, a reign of wealth and wisdom. we've seen this reign of almost a picture of what heaven is going to be like, God dwelling amongst his people. Everything's good. and then last week, chapter eleven you see the slow drift and decline as solomon takes a wrong path a tragedy and the background really that we need to keep in mind in this chapter is god's word that came in chapter 11 his word that came you remember ahijah the prophet comes and he says see i'm going to take i'm going to tear this kingdom out of solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes But for the sake of my servant David in the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped other gods. The word of God that comes in chapter 11 is this. There's going to be judgment. Ten tribes. The kingdom's going to be split. But also a word of grace. The promise to David will remain. Jerusalem will stay there. So it's a word of God that comes, both of judgment and of grace and we're going to look at the story today in chapter 12 in in two parts so verses 1 to 24 the, the longer part we'll look at and see how the word of God is fulfilled through human folly the word of God fulfilled through human folly and then 25 to 33 we'll see how the word of God is rejected through human insecurity so the word of God fulfilled through human folly and then rejected through human insecurity So let's look down then and pick the story up at verse 1 of chapter 12. So Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days, then come back to me. So the people went away. Don't be confused. Rehoboam, Jeroboam, sound similar names. Rehoboam, he is the son of Solomon. He's the one who goes to Shechem to make king. Jeroboam, he's kind of the trade union leader. He's the one who they go to to, to have their talks about the workforce. And you'll see, they think now the king's just been crowned. This is a great opportunity for us. So we can go, go to them and say, the, the yoke you put on us is too harsh. Lighten it. So what does the king do? Well, verse six, King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. Well, they replied, if you today will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. So very sensibly, Rehoboam, who does he go to? Well, the wise people. He goes to the elders, the people who had served under Solomon. He goes up to them and says, what should I do? And they say, well, be a servant king. Be a king who serves. Of course, as later we'll see wisdom personified in the Lord Jesus. What do we see? A king who serves. I did not come to be served, but to serve. Their their advice is is wise. Rehoboam, go this way. Be a servant king. If only he'd listened. Verse 8. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what's your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, tell these people who have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you. With Scorpions, and even as you read it, you think, no, don't listen to the young men who you 've grown up with, don 't listen to your mates don 't do that. listen to the wise people. listen to them. Of course, you, you look at their advice, and, and what is it? Verse ten, "My little finger is thicker than my father 's waist. In other words, they say, "Be a man, show yourself to be the bigger man. Do what your father never did. Crush them." Make the yoke heavier. Make it heavier and heavier and heavier. That will show them. Be the man. So you've got these, these sort of two competing bits of advice. The path of wisdom. Be a servant king. The path of folly. Ah, just listen to your mates. Do what they say. Crush the rebellion. And, Jer- and Rehoboam, what does he do? Verse 12 to 14. He takes the path of folly. He rejects the advice given by the elders. He follows the advice of the young men. And when they reconvene, he says to the trade union leader, it's going to get harder for you. We are going to crush you. From here, the story essentially, it descends into a farce. And what you see is just folly upon folly upon folly upon folly. It's all folly. You just look at what happens. So Israel, verse 16, they see the king refuses to listen. So what do they do? Well, uh... What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel. Look after your own house, O David. In other words, uh, let's just reject God's promises. We don't want anything more to do with the line of David. Nothing more to do with that. Let's just go our own way and and let's reject that. So the kingdom split. Verse 18, what does Rehoboam do? Well, King Rehoboam sends out Adoniram, who is in charge of the forced labor. Hmm. I mean, that's sensible, isn't it, right? The guys are annoyed that you're making them work too hard. And what do you do? Uh, you send out the guy in charge of forced labor to them. Not very sensible, I don't think. And what do they do in response? Verse 18b. Well, Israel stoned him to death. If you're going to send us the guy in charge of forced labor, well, we're going to kill him. That's sensible. And so Israel's been in rebellion all this day. But Rehoboam gets back and he thinks, hmm, okay, the kingdom's been split. What should I do? Verse 21. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered the whole house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 fighting men, to make war against the house of Israel, to regain the kingdom for Rehoboam, son of Solomon. Okay, so if you're going to split the kingdom, uh, we're going to have a war. That's what we're going to do. We're going to gain the kingdom back. Of course, he's outnumbered five tribes to one. He may have 180,000 men, but that's not good odds. Not very sensible. Finally, God puts an end to the folly. Verse 22 to 24. But the word of God came to Shemaiah the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to the whole house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. Don't go up and fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again as the Lord had ordered. You sit back and you see, Folly upon folly upon folly upon folly. Stupid mistake after stupid mistake. Desperately sad. The nation that had so recently been united now split. Torn in two. But what's the point? What's the point of this story? What's going on? Well, verse 15 and verse 24, the narrator helps us see what's going on. Look down at verse 15. It says this The king did not listen to the people. Why? For this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. This turn of events was from the Lord. Or again, verse 24. Don't go up to fight against your brothers. Go home, every one of you. Why? For this is my doing. See, the narrator here, he's making a very simple point. He's saying through all this folly and madness, God's word is being fulfilled. Through all this folly and madness, God's word is being fulfilled. You remember back to 1 Kings 11, the word of judgment the kingdom's going to be torn in apart. You get to the end of this chapter, God's word is fulfilled. His word of grace, there's going to be one tribe there who's going to remain with Rehoboam so that the promise to David could be fulfilled. And you get to the end of the chapter, his word is fulfilled. Judgment and grace, both fulfilled. God's word stands firm at the end of the chapter. That's what the narrator's saying. As you look at the folly In 1 Kings chapter 12, God's word stands firm. Let's think about two implications of this for a moment. Two implications that come from the passage. First is this that because God's word is trustworthy, because it stands firm, God does judge sin. That's what it's saying. Because God's word stands firm, he does judge sin. Whatever else you say about 1 Kings chapter 12, you have to say that this passage is here to explain what happened after Solomon sinned. It's the consequence of it. 1 Kings 11, he drifts away, worships other gods. 1 Kings 12, the result, God's judgment. You think about a a child living in Israel who gets old enough to start asking mom and dad awkward questions. And the little child says, Mummy, why is our nation split in two? What's going on? And Mummy would open 1 Kings chapter 12 and say, This is what happens when the king drifts away from the Lord. This is what happens judgment comes. It's a sobering truth because God's word is trustworthy. When he says, I will judge sin, that's what he means I will judge sin. And you see that throughout the Bible, right from Genesis chapter 2. If you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Right the way through to Acts, where Paul say that he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. All the way through, because God's word is trustworthy, sin is judged. It's a sobering truth, but it's what the passage is here for. But secondly... We also see that because God's word is trustworthy, his grace prevails even through human folly. Because God's word is trustworthy, his grace prevails even through human folly. I mean, the whole chapter is set up to just show the repeated folly between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, all of them doing stupid things again and again. But through all of that, what's happening is this, God's word is being fulfilled. Through all of that folly, God is not kicked off the throne. He is still in charge. Things are still happening, as he says, and his word is fulfilled. It's the mystery of of how how humans make real choices that they're really responsible for. And at the same time, God remains sovereign through it all. Humans' responsibility, God's sovereignty, together, both here in this passage. Saying that through all of this, all of this folly, God remains in charge. Because his word is trustworthy. And as you follow that promise of David through the whole promise to David through the whole story of the Bible, you see this truth most clearly at the cross of Jesus Christ, do you not? God's word prevailing, his word of grace prevailing through human folly. At the cross, you see the, the pinnacle of human folly and wickedness. What folly To cry, crucify him to Jesus. What folly. The one man whose heart had never been divided. The one man who had always been a servant king. What folly to say, crucify him. The cross, the pinnacle of human folly and wickedness. And yet through it all, God's trustworthy word is being accomplished. His trustworthy word is being accomplished. He's saying, at the cross, judgment and grace meet together. Judgment and grace meet together as Jesus is judged for sin, the sin of his people, and grace is held out for those who would trust him. See, at the cross, God is working throughout all human folly and wickedness to bring about his trustworthy word. And that is good news if you trust him. That is wonderful news if you trust him. It's wonderful news because it means the judgment that God has promised for sin. If you trust in the cross of Jesus, that judgment is gone. God has worked through human folly to bring about wonderful grace to his people. But what's more, that's a wonderfully reassuring word. As you look at a world such as ours, that's a wonderfully reassuring word. As we were praying earlier, this world is, in many senses, in an absolute mess. What do you see as you look around the world... You see terrorist attacks, you see economic crises, you see refugees. No one knows what to do. You see human folly and wickedness everywhere. In our own personal lives, we see it with people who we know. We contribute our fair share of it as well. But this chapter in 1 Kings 12 is saying, Do you not know through this all God remains on the throne? The world is not spiralling out of his control. It's not. He remains on the throne. His word remains trustworthy. And that gives us confidence. When we think of Advent, about how Jesus came once and is one day going to come again, this word gives us absolute confidence that that will happen, that God remains sovereign throughout it all. No matter what human folly is going on, we can trust his word. And I find that wonderfully reassuring. Wonderfully reassuring that God's word is fulfilled throughout all human folly. It means we can trust him. So that's the first part, God's word fulfilled through human folly. But in verses 25 through to 33, we get sort of a test case. So if God's word is trustworthy, well, the sensible thing to do then is to trust God's word. That's the sensible thing to do. But in verses 25 to 33, we get an example of someone who gets this spectacularly wrong. Jeroboam. Let's look down at verse 25. It says this, Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, Are the kingdoms now likely to revert to the house of David? If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. So you see the issue here. Jeroboam feels insecure. He's kind of just got his kingdom, and now he's a bit worried that it's going to be taken away from him. Except he shouldn't think that. Because back in chapter 11, listen to what God had said to Jeroboam. Listen to God's word. This is what he said to Jeroboam. If you do whatever I command you, if you walk in my ways, if you do what is right in my eyes, by keeping my statutes and commands, as David my servant did, I'll be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. So back in chapter 11, God had said, Jeroboam, if you walk in my ways, your kingdom is safe. I'll establish it. That's what God's word had said. So you come into these verses, and what's Jeroboam doing? Oh, he's feeling a little bit insecure. Can I trust God's word? Hmm, I don't think so. I'm going to have my kingdom taken off me. They're going to go back to Jerusalem. They're going to go to the temple. And then I'm going to lose my kingdom, because they'll want to go back to and then they'll kill me. So he's feeling, he's feeling a little bit insecure. God's word has come. We've just seen God's word is trustworthy. God is always working to fulfill his word. And now, Jeroboam, ah. I feel a little bit insecure. So what does the person who's insecure with God's word do? Well, verse 28. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, the other in Dan, and this thing became a sin. The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests in the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. What does the person who is insecure with God's word do, who can't trust him? Uh, He he just makes a few subtle changes so that he can secure his own kingdom. He goes into idolatry. He says, if I can't trust the real God and his promises, what I'll do is uh, I'll just make a slightly new God i just slightly slightly change what God is, is like so that I can be secure. So what does he do? Oh, new gods, verse 28. New locations, one up in the north, one down in the south. Pagan shrines in high places, a new priesthood, a new religious festival. Why? So that he can make sure the people don't go back to Jerusalem. But God had said, God had said, Jeroboam, walk in my ways, then I'll secure your kingdom. Jeroboam... Trust me, trust me, walk in my ways and then you'll be secure. And Jeroboam straight away, what's he do? I can't trust God. I can't be secure in his promises. So what I'll do is I'll make a new God, a new God who can be trusted. And you notice just how, how subtle the changes he makes are and how, how easy they would be to justify? So verse 31, there's still a priesthood What does it matter that they're taking priests from a few different tribes? What does that matter? You know, surely are we just making God a little bit more inclusive? What does it matter? So subtle. I mean, they're still offering sacrifices, verse 32. I mean, what does it matter that they're doing it at Bethel and Dan rather than at Jerusalem? I mean, if you know the history of, of Israel, you'll know that God had appeared at Bethel it appeared at Bethel to Jacob. And at Dan, well, the grandson of Moses had worshipped there. So, so these have good religious pedigree. It's sort of authentic. It's almost going back to our roots. It's so subtle. Just make a few changes. So easy to justify. And besides, it solves his problem. If he does this, then he can establish his kingdom. He can be secure in himself. So subtle. So reasonable, yet so wrong. Yet so wrong. You'll see verse 30, God's verdict. This thing became a sin. This thing became a sin. And in chapter 13, God will say that this was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. So subtle, so reasonable, but so wrong. Someone insecure with the promises of God's word. So it makes a, a, just a slightly new God, a, just a few changes, and leads to, dis- to disaster. And of course, you, you look at Jeroboam and you want to think, what a fool. What a fool for not being secure with God's promises. What a fool. But at the same time, we do have to look in our own hearts for a moment We do have to look in our own hearts. Where is it that we feel insecure with God's promises? And so we're just just tempted just to make a few little tweaks, a few little changes, just to secure our kingdom now. So, you know, God promises that that life in this world as a Christian, it does involve suffering and persecution. It does involve that. He promises that, but says... Do you know what? That's the path Jesus took and it results in glory, so keep going. That's what God promises. But it's so easy to be insecure with that and just, ah, oh, if only I could be a bit more comfortable. If only I could be just a, just a little bit more comfortable like my friends are. I prefer to feel safe. I would prefer to feel popular. And so, ah, oh, I just can't trust that God will safely get me home. So I'll just start building for now. Of course, you don't justify it by entirely leaving the message of the Christian faith. You, you just start, just make a few subtle changes to God so that you can secure yourself now. Just a few subtle changes. Oh, if I just tweak the message of Christianity just slightly, uh, then, then I'll be safe. Then I'll be comfortable. But God promises you're going to get home to heaven. He promises you're going to get home to heaven. So why, why change the message? Why change that? Why not trust his promises? Actually, last week I was thrilled as we heard the finance update and we heard how, how it was that under God, people here at Christchurch Mayfair have been giving generously to the work of the gospel. And I was thrilled by that, not just because oh, we've reached our targets, I was thrilled because it suggests hearts of people here are secure in God's word, that they can trust his promises, because if you can trust. If you can trust his promises, then you're able to give. You're able to give. You don't need to hold on to everything now to make yourself secure now. You can trust and so you can give. And so I was thrilled. I was thrilled as I heard that. Because it suggests that people here, to some extent, are secure in God's promises. Able to give. Insecurity for Jeroboam led to idolatry. Insecurity led to idolatry. And look, that, that can work itself out in a thousand ways in our own lives. You know, maybe it's worth asking someone afterwards, a friend, oh, where, where do you think you're likely to be insecure in God's promises? And so perhaps just want to tweak things a little bit to make you more secure. Perhaps worth asking someone that. But the book of One Kings would say, don't do that. Don't do that. As we saw in the first part, God's word is trustworthy. It is. His word is trustworthy. Everything is working out for his purposes. And you can trust him for that. So don't feel like you need to be insecure. Trust his word. So, as we come to an end of this chapter, a miserable chapter in many ways, as you see God's judgment come, there is that glimmer of hope for us the glimmer of hope that through human folly and madness, God is at work supremely at the cross of Jesus Christ, supremely as he takes judgment and offers grace to us there. His unshakable word of grace has prevailed over human folly and is still prevailing so that one day he will take his people home. That is wonderfully reassuring. And so trust that. Trust that. Don't go away into insecurity. Trust him. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that in a world such as this, we are so quick to turn, so quick to be insecure in your promises. And yet again and again throughout the Bible, you've shown us that your word can be trusted. Our Father, we know it warns us. It warns us of your promise of judgment, but it also reassures us. Father, how we praise you. It reassures us that in this world, we can keep on trusting you that things aren't spiraling out of control, that you are still on the throne, still reigning, your word is still sure to us. And so I pray that you would help each one of us to be secure in that word, to trust that word, the word that will get us safely home. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.